Let's look at uh, chapter 20 tonight. Acts chapter 20. Another passage where there's not a lot of doctrine, so you'll bear with me as I make observations as we go. At least I hope you will. hope it's uh, edifying to you. It certainly is to me. Uh, not me teaching it, but uh, just going through it. Came across a quote in relation to uh, something completely different, but it fits the passage today. John Wesley to William Wilberforce, who brought uh, slavery to an end in England. The last letter that John Wesley wrote right before he died, he says, and speaking to William Wilberforce, he said, unless God has raised you up for this very thing, you will be worn out by the opposition of men and devils. But if God be for you, who can be against you? Are all of them stronger than God? Oh, be not weary of well-doing. Go on in the name of God and in the power of his might, that he who has guided you from youth up may continue to strengthen you in this and all things is my prayer. Now, this is John Wesley praying for William Wilberforce in his quest to rid Britain of slavery, of the slave trade. And he did. Wilberforce succeeded in that. But boy, it fits. As I read it, I thought this, this fits anything that a minister does, certainly that Paul was doing. That, that, that line there, unless God has raised you up for this very thing, you will be worn out by the opposition of men and devils. Unless God has raised you up for it. And we see that the Apostle Paul was raised up for this, for many of these things. As we review his journeys, let's go through and look at some colorful maps here. First journey, I like to go over this because I, I hear... Sometimes just overhear you talking. Uh, sometimes people tell me that Acts is so difficult, that Acts is so difficult. It's not really difficult. There's just a lot there. Would you agree? A lot there. So to go back through these, these I don't think is a, is a fruitless endeavor. To go back through it, I hope it's not for you. Paul's first journey, who was he with? And? And Mark. John Mark. So they leave the home church in Antioch, and they go down here to Cyprus. They start here. They go all the way to the end. This is Acts 13. They make their way up here. Somebody leaves them right here. John Mark, gone home. A little homesick. Paul is very sick here. Doesn't even share the gospel uh, in this area. Comes back through later and does. Climbs over these mountains. Goes into Pisidian Antioch. Different than Syrian Antioch. Pisidian Antioch. Shares the gospel here. Goes on to Iconium. Goes into Lystra. Goes over to Derby. Uh, is left stoned and left for dead there in Lystra. Goes to Derby, comes back to Lystra. Who's a very famous person in the Bible that was from Lystra? Paul's right-hand man. Thank you. From there, he goes back up, goes back here, does share the gospel in Perga, where he did not when he got there, and goes home. That's the end of Acts chapter 14. In Acts 15, there's a discussion uh, among the, the apostles. Paul goes up to Jerusalem, right down here. And they discuss whether or not there is... Why are you smiling ear to ear? Is there something on me? Oh, my daughter. <laughs> See, when, when I do music, in the past when I do music, there was always a young lady in the audience. It wasn't, wasn't Brooke. She was always smiling like she knew something I didn't. <laughs> and I never liked that feeling. So when my daughter is smiling like that, Rebecca, I'm wondering, what is she saying? Because my wife has many times has said, there was many times, I just wish you'd have done that or something. Because your hair was sticking up. So anyway, anyway. <laughs> you couldn't be that excited to be here, sweetie. Anyway. So Acts 15, they have a discussion on whether the gospel is by God's grace or is it by God's grace with man's works. 
that discussion is put to, to rest. Paul and Barnabas come back together, say, let's go back and visit the churches. Barnabas says, absolutely, let's do it. I'll go get John Mark. Paul says, no way. He's not going with us. They have a split. Barnabas goes back to the area of Cyprus. That's where he was from, as you recall. And John Mark is his cousin. Paul took Silas and Timothy. Took Silas, I should say. And they went up this way, second journey. He goes back. This is where he's from, Cilicia. Uh, and Tarsus is his hometown. He climbs this mountain range. They go over that mountain range. They go back into Derby and Lystra. Here's Derby here. Lystra picks up Timothy. He becomes the third member of their second missionary journey tour. Paul wants to go up in here. This is the area of Galatia at that time. You see that? Paul wants to go up here into Bithynia. God says no. Paul wants to go over here into Asia. God says no. He makes his way all the way up in here to Troas, where he gets a vision from Macedonia. This is Asia. This is Europe. God, he gets a vision, and God says, come to Macedonia. So Paul does. He goes from Troas here, a very important point. He crosses over here into Neapolis, and his first church there that he starts is in Philippi. It's not there, but when he leaves, it's there. People come to know Christ. Who's the most famous uh, person from there? Actually, there's two. Her name is, that's the hint, her. And the other one we know is Luke. Luke is from, from Philippi. Uh, he leaves Philippi after, a, let's just say, a very adventurous time, being whipped and beaten and put in jail. Uh, he goes over here to, uh, in Macedonia, all this is in that, that orange area of Macedonia, goes over here to uh, Thessalonica, right here. And then they kick him out after a few weeks. He goes to Berea, and then he goes down to Athens, and then he goes into this little seaport, and he visits Corinth. And from there, he sails over to Ephesus, to end his journey, the people in Ephesus say, please stay here. We love you. He says, if God wills, I'll come back. He goes home. On the third journey, he goes back, takes the same route from Antioch, strengthens these churches, these Galatian churches, makes his way back to Ephesus, and that's where he is in the third journey. By the time we get to Acts 19, excuse me, he's at the end of that three-year time the period there, and there's what we saw last week, that riot. So when we get to chapter 20, verse 1, it says, after the uproar had ceased, that'd be the uproar from the riot. After that had ceased, Paul sent for the disciples. These would be the ascending for the disciples of Ephesus. That's where he's been for three years, and he's essentially telling them goodbye. Sent for the disciples, um, and when he had exhorted them or encouraged them, and taking his leave of them, he left to go to Macedonia. So let's take a look at a few things. Luke doesn't give us any of the details of what's going on there. I talked about it briefly last week. Let's go over it again this week. I thought about sharing just an entire message on this because it's important. It fits real well in, in Acts. But I'm going to breeze through it. Uh, and hopefully you keep up since I've already looked at it. We already looked at it a little bit last week. During Paul's three years in Ephesus... Number one, we note, as I noted last week, he wrote a non-extant, that's a non-existent letter to the Corinthians confronting some of the issues that he had become aware of. We know that he had written a letter that's not 1 Corinthians because in the letter of 1 Corinthians, in chapter 5, verse 9, he says, in the letter I wrote you, I said, don't associate with immoral people. So there was some letter we don't have. He had written that to them. 
hearing more trouble, and we know the trouble that he had heard in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11, there were divisions in the church. So hearing some more trouble, he wrote to clarify on these issues, and he writ written the letter. This is the letter of 1 Corinthians, and he sent it by way of Timothy. We know that from chapter 4. So Timothy took the letter from Ephesus across the Aegean Sea into Corinth. 1 Corinthians. After the arrival of false teachers that came upon the scene in that area, in Corinth, uh, Paul had a painful visit. We're not, we don't know anything about it other than what he says about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1, where he went over and it was a painful time. It, wasn't, it didn't accomplish anything. In fact, it looks like he was humiliated and made fun of by the false teachers there. In fact, if you read 2 Corinthians, you can see him defending his apostleship against those who called themselves super apostles. So after the arrival of these false teachers, he made a painful visit to Corinth and accomplished little. He went back to Ephesus after he had been humiliated from Corinth, that painful visit, and he wrote another letter, another non-extant letter that we have, we don't have, I should say, called a severe letter. He speaks about this severe letter when he writes 2 Corinthians. In my letter to you, that letter, he said, it, it, it upset you. He said, I'm not sorry that it upset you. I'm sorry that I had to write a letter like that, but it brought you to repentance. And he sent this one by Titus. Now, what we don't see here when, Paul, when uh, Luke writes in, in Acts 21, 20, verse 1, it says, after the upward ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and when he had exhorted them, he had taken his leave of them, he left to go to Macedonia. There's a lot of pain in that, a lot of things going on before he left for Macedonia that we read about in 2 Corinthians. Paul went to Macedonia, not because he just said, okay, it's time to leave. Towards the end of his journey, after three years in Ephesus, following the rite, which we just read, Paul departed for Macedonia. By the way, Macedonia, as I showed you on the map, was Philippi, Thessalonia, or Thessalonica, and Berea. Those three churches, at least. From Ephesus to Troas, so he's, go back, I should have another map there. From Ephesus to Troas here, you've got here, he's in Ephesus, where's my, is that working? There it is. From Ephesus, got to put my glasses on, blind as a bat. So from Ephesus here, where is Ephesus? Where was I? There it is. Right. From Ephesus to Troas is just that trip up there. So that's what Paul does. He's going to go from there. He's been there for three years. It's time to go into Macedonia. And remember, what, he's, what we looked at last week is Paul has every intention of going. He wants to go back here to Jerusalem, but he's going to take this way first. He's got to pick up money from these uh, Gentile churches, and, and his purpose, his thought is, I'm going to go through here. I'm coming to Jerusalem, but I got to go this way to finish picking up the offering from the Gentiles to the Jewish church. And his hope is to set sail from Corinth to go all the way back down here to Jerusalem. Problem is when he's over here, he learns of a plot to kill him. Apparently a bunch of Jews are getting on, a, on the, the ship and Paul gets word of it. So instead of going straight back here, he goes back the way he came. Long way to get back up here. And he does make his way back to Jerusalem, which we'll read in chapter 21. So towards the end of his journey, from Ephesus, he went to Troas as planned to meet up with Timothy and Erastus, whom he had sent ahead of him back in chapter 19, verses 21-22. In Troas, Paul hoped to find Titus. That's what's not given to us in Acts 20, verse 1, that we get from Paul in 2 Corinthians. He had sent Titus, remember, he had sent Titus with a letter, a severe letter, a letter that's probably denouncing their sins. Here's what you did. Here's what you did to me when I was there. You humiliated me. Here's what you're doing. You're in sin. You need to repent. He probably told them to turn or burn. A severe letter. And he sent it by Titus. So it's like sending an email. You send an email. You know, you speak your mind. You send it. And what do you do all day? 
you worry about the return, right? How's that going to go over? That's, there's no email here. Paul has sent a letter, and it's tearing him up inside. Titus has got to get to the church, deliver it, preach it, encourage them. And then Paul apparently has a plan whereby, Titus, when you're through, make your way back up to Troas. I'll meet you in Troas. But the whole time he's meeting him, he's waiting and meeting him in Troas, it's burning inside of him. What did they do? Did they repent? He's praying on his knees, no doubt. Lord, let him repent. Let him see the letter I wrote in the, in the spirit in which I wrote it. It's killing him. So when he gets to Troas here, he doesn't find Titus. He says this in 2 Corinthians. So thinking he can find Titus in Macedonia, he goes ahead and crosses and gets to Macedonia, and he does. He finds him there. So he does not find him there, there. But leaving a door of evangelistic opportunity to us, by the way, when he was there, he speaks of this open door in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 to 13. He said, even though there was an open door for ministry for me in Troas, my spirit could not focus on it. It's one of the things about ministry. You want to focus in on what God has given you, but there are some things that just take your mind miles away. And Paul couldn't do it. He couldn't take that open door. I've got to find Titus because the Corinthians were so near and dear to him. So leaving a door of evangelistic opportunity in Troas, he left for Macedonia and he found Titus. Imagine what he saw. Titus, there you are. Well, how did it go? And the great thing is, is Titus says, Paul, they read your letter and they repented. There's probably never been a happier man than, than that day when he read that. And so when Paul reads this, or when Paul hears this from Titus, he sends Titus back and he sends back 2 Corinthians. Titus, go give this letter to them. I'll meet you there in a couple of weeks. So that's, that's the system. So Paul had originally written to the Corinthians. We don't have that letter. The first letter we have from him is called 1 Corinthians, but that's actually the second letter. Paul wrote a severe letter, which we don't have. That would have been his third letter. And then he wrote 2 Corinthians, which is actually his... Thank you. Very good. All right, now, aren't you glad you came? You weathered the storms to get here tonight. He wrote 2 Corinthians from Macedonia, sent it on ahead of him, and arrived later to enjoy the three months in Corinth. So when we're reading Acts chapter 20, Verse 1, after the uproar had ceased, speaking of chapter 19, Paul sent for the disciples in Ephesus, said, I'm leaving. And when he had exhorted them and was taking leave from them, he left to go to Macedonia. There's a lot in there that Luke doesn't give that Paul fills in in 2 Corinthians. So you could put, it may be right there in your margin of your Bible, read 2 Corinthians and you'll see what's going on. Verse 2, when he had gone through uh, those districts, that would be the districts of Macedonia, remember, that's Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea, he had gone through those districts and had given them much exhortation. He came to Greece. When he's talking about Greece, he's talking at least about Corinth and probably uh, some believers in Cancrea. Just a couple miles away, remember, what happened, very important, that happened in Cancrea? Paul got a haircut. That's, that's where you... So you're supposed to remember that. I made a big deal about that in the past. That's where he got his haircut. And keeping a vow. Anybody says Cancrea in the, in, the, in the future, you're going to go, <laughs> that's where Paul got a haircut. <laughs> Verse 3, and there he spent three months. He spent three months in Greece. And note this, what I said earlier. And when a plot was formed against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. All right, so while in Greece, which is Corinth, for three months, which we've read in Acts chapter 20, verses 2 to 3, this would be the winter of A.D. 57, likely, uh, when sailing shut down, he had to stay there for three months because you don't sail in the winter. Paul may have visited Illyricum, which is modern Albania. Here's what he writes in, to the Romans. He says, In the power of the Spirit, 
so that from Jerusalem and round about, by the way, while Paul was in that's when he wrote the letter to the Romans. At the end of his three-month stay there, he had picked up the, 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 uh, all the money, the, the offering he was going to take back to Jerusalem, and before he set sail for Jerusalem, he writes a letter to Rome, which is very nearby, and he's telling him, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and I'm going to come back and visit you. Here's what he tells him. In the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and round about, as far as Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. For this reason, I have often been prevented from coming to you. But now with no further place for me in these regions, and since I have had for many years a longing to come to you whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my way there by you, but now I am going to Jerusalem, serving the saints. That's that offering. He's giving that offering. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Therefore, when I have finished this and have put my seal on this fruit of their, put my seal on this fruit of theirs, I will go on by way of you to Spain. So he's saying, I'm writing a letter. I'm going to go back to Jerusalem, and I'm going to come back, and I'm going to stop, and we're going to have fellowship, and I'm going to go on to Spain from there. You're going to help me on my way. Probably saw, perhaps saw Rome to be like a home base for him as Antioch had been. In other words, he's already shared the gospel all over this part of the empire. He's going to go over that part of the empire. So here's Illyricum. Here's the, you can probably t- tell by the, the Italian boot there. Um, right here along the, the sea, here's Macedonia. Here's Greece and Achaia down here, where Paul was. Right up in here is Dalmatia, also called Illyricum. Uh, so Paul, we don't know where or when Paul would have been to Illyricum. There's nothing in there, nothing in Acts that fits it in except this little three-month stay in Corinth. So if that means anything to you, that's where Paul probably was when he was staying down here in Corinth for those three months, wintering in AD 57. He probably went up in here and shared the gospel in the area of Dalmatia or Illyricum. Uh, modern-day Albania. Uh, here it is just a lot, right along the, the Adriatic Sea. What's Spain? Spain is just due west. Hop, skip, and a jump to the west. Um, let's see. So let's take a look. So that's, that's where, just to context, those first three verses, <clears throat> I hope that's interesting to you. I hope it didn't lose you too much, but just bring you, bringing other parts of the Bible together, what's on Paul's mind, where he's been, what he's going to do. Verse 4, so we see he's going to return. He was going to return straight to, to Jerusalem, but learned of a plot to his life, so he's going to have to go back through the other territories. When he goes there, verse 4, and he was accompanied by Sopater of Berea, the son of Pyrrhus. Now, we know that he started a church in Berea, right? Okay. And Aristarchus and Secundus, we know he started a church in Thessalonica. That's where they're from. And Gaius of Derby, he started that church in Derby back in... In Acts 13, and Timothy, Timothy's from Lystra, and Tychicus, and Trophimus from Asia. Uh, that's either Ephesus or just the surrounding areas there. So he's accompanied by these men. So let's take a look at these guys. Paul's ministry, you'll see uh, com- his ministry companions reveal success in ministry. And each one of them represents a church that he started, which I love. It's a full proclamation of the gospel from Jerusalem to Illyricum. So each person is representing a representative of a Gentile church who's with Paul. We also know Timothy's with him. We also know Luke is with him, or Luke will, will join up with him again because start, we start the we sections again, and uh, assuming that Silas is also there with him, a Jew. Aristarchus is mentioned in chapter 19, verse 29, and 27, verse 2. He was a fellow prisoner of Paul's. He calls him that in Colossians 4.10. And he was one of his fellow workers, according to Philemon 24. Tychicus, or better, Tychicus, I just hate saying Tychicus. 
uh, is called a dear brother and faithful servant of the Lord. In fact, we have the letters today of Colossians, Philemon, and Ephesians because one man did his job. Tychicus, he took the letter there. We have Romans, how? Because a woman named Phoebe, Phoebe. It's my daughter's favorite name in the whole world, Phoebe. Uh, because Phoebe delivered the letter to Rome. Probably living in Corinth, Phoebe, you are a trustworthy lady. Will you take this to Rome? She did. Um, Trophimus will resurface again in chapter 21, verse 29. Uh, and 2 Timothy 4.20, uh, Paul left him sick on the island of Miletus, or the area of Miletus. He was a Gentile whom Paul was accused of taking into the temple precincts, Trophimus was. And Timothy also travels with Paul, but Sopater, Secundus, and Gaius are mentioned only here. So these people Paul takes with him. It's noteworthy that Paul hardly ever traveled alone, and that when he was alone, he expressed his longing for human companionship. For example, when he was in Athens, and in his final Roman imprisonment, he's writing in 2 Timothy, he's all alone. Uh, it's a very sad letter. It is noteworthy that Paul ever traveled alone. Uh, as I was saying, the sadness of 2 Timothy was he's in a dungeon. He's by himself. Uh, Luke was there, but Luke wasn't in the same dungeon. Uh, the man was, was hurting for companionship. He didn't have a wife. He had no children. But Paul traveled with people. Uh, ministry is best done with others and not alone. Uh, I can attest to that. I mean, I have a wife. I, I, I love to have a wife. My, my daughter is currently with us as well, and... Uh, I don't go home to an empty house. But no, it's, no, sometimes that would be great. I love the fact that they're there. I mean, um, some of you, I mean, Sharon, look at Sharon, you're widowed. Some of you others might be widowed, and you don't. You remember a time where you came home to a house full of a husband and children, and, uh, and it's lonely. And, uh, I mean, it's not lonely. You kind of like the loneliness. <laughs> and, and there's some great side effects that are great and good, aren't there? No doubt. In ministry, there's a lot that happens. There's a lot they can talk about. I, would, I can only imagine what it would be like to come home and have no one to tell it to. I mean, Cheryl has started teaching the Monday night class. It's her first time to teach. And uh, I hear she's doing a fantastic job. And she comes. Is it, see, another, another applause. I, I don't get applause. Everybody at church gets applauses. I love that, though. Thank you for, on, on her behalf because she's so nervous. And there's nothing about her that's desiring attention. She's... She, isn't she absolutely the greatest in the world? <laughs> but she comes home and she is, as any teacher is, she, I say, how'd it go? Blah, 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 you know? Because you've just taught God's word. It's exciting. No one comes home with eh. eh, eh, eh. And, and it's not so much that she's excited what she did. She's excited that there are people there, that the questions are coming in, and the people wanting to know more. It's incredible. It's a great thing. It would be a terrible thing to come home and have no one to talk to. So. Anyway, ministry with others is wonderful. Paul certainly uh, believes that. Uh, and so he lists these men. There's a, I did a sermon years ago uh, when I was preaching through Colossians. And when I got to the end of Colossians, uh, as Paul does in some of his books, some of his letters, he, he just starts thanking people. I want to thank, here's Tychicus coming to you. Timothy is coming. Uh, make sure you greet John Mark and then Luke. And then I thought, I don't know how I'm going to do this. It ended up being one of the favorite sermons I've ever preached. Uh, that end of Colossians, going through who these men were uh, and, and, and how, how they related to Paul. And then right after that, I went to Romania, spent a week over there and, and was uh, doing one of my 
pastoral seminars there with, with all the church, the pastors there, and I did Colossians there. And that was the most popular one. Not that sermons are rated in popularity, most of it's minutia, but that one was, everyone loved that. And I'll never forget, one, one man came up. I'll never forget it. Same with Samuel. And he didn't speak good English. About half of them do and half don't. But uh, he came up and he just looked at me, he looked, towered over me, and his, his big manly face just contorted with pain uh, over, uh, over the hurt that was in him and, and what came out from talking about these men. Uh, that 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 Paul was greeting, and how each one has a place in the life of of each one of us, uh, people. Uh, so all of these names, no one ever. It's, sometimes it's hard to pronounce them. And you go, I can't pronounce that name. But these are men that made Paul great. God put these people around him. We know Paul. We love Paul. We can't meet to Paul, wait to meet Paul. I, I can't. But these are the people that uh, that are that are in the in the peripheral view. When you get to heaven one day, I want to meet Secundus. I want to meet Aristarchus. Show me Tychicus. And don't you think Tychicus is going to be excited? You knew me? You thought about me beyond just what's there? Yeah. I, tell me about your adventure from the prison cell in Rome. You traveled all the way back to Ephesus to deliver that letter. And then over to Colossae. And then in Colossae, you went over to, to uh, uh, deliver the letter of what? can't remember the house. It was in Archippus', Archippus house, uh, and, and you delivered that letter. How did it go with Philemon? Did, did he receive Onesimus? Right? He's got stories to tell. So the great men in Scripture, the great women in Scripture, the great men and women in life are great because God surrounds them with people that, uh, that may be not so great in the world's eyes, but make those people effective and great. And we see it, whole list of them there. Uh, Paul says in verse 5, these had gone on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. We sailed from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and came to them at Troas within five days. By the way, if you go back to chapter 16, verse 11, it took them two days to cross that channel. Now it takes them five days. It would have been a difficult travel for whatever reason, and there we stayed seven days. And I want you to see there, just as, a, as a, just a side note, is Luke's detail of days. He gives these locations. Here's how long we were there. We were along here this many days. We meet these people. We're going to go here. Here's our goal. He's very specific. He's, he's like my wife planning a vacation. Everything's there. So on verse 7, we get this interesting story uh, in verse, verses 7 to 12. It says, now on the first day of the week. What's the first day of the week? Sunday. Okay. Note what they're doing on the first day of the week. When we were gathered together to break bread. Most likely, I mean, that's obviously a meal, but it's more than likely on the first day of the week a commemoration of the supper, the Lord's Supper. Uh, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day. And he prolonged his message until midnight. So you can never, ever get mad at me for going an hour or more. I had a guy years ago that said, I'll tell you what, he said, you're never going to build this church uh, preaching for 45 minutes. Back then, I only preached for 45 minutes. I said, that's odd because we started with 36 and we have like 200. I mean, so what do you mean we're never going to build a church? In other words, you're not going to come back. Um, here's Paul preaching from probably 4 o'clock in the afternoon to midnight. Prolonged his message until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room. By the way, that word is torches. Torches in the upper room. And they were gathered together. And there was a young man named Eutychus sitting on a windowsill, sinking into a deep sleep. You ever been there? Have you ever been in a place, you're not just tired, but 
Everything there is hypnotic. Right here, I think the torches are mentioned because that's part of a warmth. A lot of people, we're going to learn they're on a third-story uh, room. People packed in. He's on the windowsill. He's just in a very warm place. It's midnight. I mean, how many of you start getting tired at 745 tonight, right? It's midnight. You've been sitting there since 4 or 5 o'clock in the afternoon. Do you, do you sympathize with this guy? He's on the sinking into a deep sleep. By the way, the word for sleep here is the word from which we get hypnosis. Same Greek word. In other words, he's in a hypnotic state. You've been there, right? <laughs> Dozing off while sitting up straight. And as Paul kept on talking, he was overcome by that sleep. And he fell down from the third floor and was picked up dead. But Paul went down and fell upon him. And after embracing him, said, Do not be troubled, for his life is in him. When they had gone back up and broken bread, they dispersed and went to bed. It's been a long day. No. Let's preach some more. They've gone back up and had broken bread and had eaten. He talked with them long, a long while until daybreak and then left. They took away the boy alive and were greatly comforted. So when we look at this, this is one of the reasons I've brought up over and over throughout this past year talking about Acts, how it's a book of description, not of prescription. If it's a descriptive book, we're in a lot of trouble here. It means we need to meet in a third-story building, because they did. It means we need to preach from 4 o'clock till midnight, have a break for food, and then preach till daybreak the next day. You up for that? We can't have lights. We need torches. We can't have air conditioning and heating. We can't have a church building. We need to be in somebody's house who has a three-story house. You see how silly it can become? When you start taking, when you start saying, they did it in the Bible... They did it in Acts. That's the way it should be done. It is a book of description. I recognize there are some times where what they're teaching or what is said here is a very good principle and is taught elsewhere in the Bible. But Acts is a descriptive book. It's not prescriptive. Make sure you know that. That's not just me saying, well, I don't want to believe that that way. It is very descriptive. So they met on the Lord's Day. Here's some principles we can take from this. And they broke bread. Uh, which is to say they, um, by the way, there was no, no such thing if they would have seen the way that we do the Lord's Supper today? Don't you think they'd laugh? Especially the all-in-one cup we use. <laughs> what was that? These people ate a meal together. It was a meal. In fact, as I've told you before, uh, we, we're, we're going to do the Lord's Supper every time we do the, the, the breakfast, which is after the end of every, uh, every quarter. Um, that really is a better description of the Lord's Supper, is coming for the potluck, eating together. Don't you think? That's the real fellowship there. It's not quiet and somber, but it's well, because we don't always do that. We don't always come together. That doesn't mean that having a little all-in-one cup with a wafer on top is not, is any less. It's what it commemorates, not how good the food is or how big the food is. But that big meal is what they did then. We've kind of reduced it to what we do. Uh, they met on the Lord's Day, Sunday. We do too. There's some theology in meeting on Sundays throughout the Bible. There was a sermon, and it was a long one. Sunset to midnight, take a break, midnight to daybreak. There was a dialogami, which is the Greek word for uh, a discussion, Q&A probably. Uh, there was a homileo, verse 11, which is what we call homily or a sermon. Uh, you ever heard of the, the study of homiletics? Homiletics is a study of, of preaching. I had one guy say uh, in their Bible study fellowship, for whatever reason, calls the, the, uh, the hermeneutics homiletics, or at least this one guy did. He said, well, I need to go home and do my homiletics. I said, 
You need to go and do your hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the, is the observation, interpretation, application of Scripture. Homiletics is how you're going to preach it. So go and impress your friends with that. God speaks to his people, don't you think, through the word, the preaching, and through the sacrament, or maybe the dramatized version of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, people will ask, and they, I think it's a good question, why don't we do it every week? Why don't we do the Lord's Supper every week? You may have been to a church where it's done every week. And the simple answer is I think it gets tedious. How many of you hear the announcements every week? Don't raise your hand because none of you do. Uh, we announce every week, every week, what's on the bulletin. It's there. And we even got a funny guy to do it. He's got a strange accent. And people note every, every week, when's this? When's that? It's right there on the sheet. Giles announced it. We've changed now to where we've got a song. We try to get everybody in, and then we do the announcements. People still ask, when's that going? It's on the announcements. When you do something every single week, it goes over the head. I don't ever want the Lord's Supper. And I will not let, as in, insofar as it's in my power, to become this, okay, time for the Lord's Supper. Drink, uh, uh, same passage, same scripture. Don't want that. I want it to be special. The best way I can, we spread it apart. Okay, good. I got an agreement. Which is good. I appreciate that. I really do. I, I love amen. So you can do the amen. The more amens, the merrier. What's that? Giddy up. Some principles of Christian worship. So John Stott says what I've been telling you all along. I love it when somebody says something that I've been saying. Stott says this, the late John Stott. He says, we will be wise to exercise due caution. For Luke's account is purely descriptive and is not intended to be prescriptive. We have no liberty, therefore, to be slavish, either in copying what took place, uh, for example, the assembling in a house, indeed on the third floor, meeting in the evening, using oil lamps for illumination, and listening to an inordinately lengthy sermon, or in omitting what is not mentioned, i.e. prayers, psalms, hymns, scripture readings, because that wasn't there. We'd have to get rid of music. Nevertheless, there seem to be principles of public worship here, which are endorsed by biblical teaching elsewhere and are applicable to us today. Agreed? So again, you got a nice, great, and he's an English theologian, and he's dead. So if you're from England and you're dead, there's great authority in that. So let's talk about church sleepers. It's a great subject. How many of you have been guilty of being a church sleeper? Yeah, fighting that church sleeper. Okay, some are just bored by lifeless, uninteresting pastors and teachers. Shame on the pastor and teacher. Never supposed to be that way. I mean, if you're not excited, how do you expect people to get excited? I don't come up, by the way, I don't come up and fire myself up before I, this just excites me. I just want you, this is as excited as I get. At home, I'm not excited. Yeah, have you? Well, I don't invite anybody into my home. For some, they're asleep because it's the first time they've sat still all week. Some of you are not accustomed to sitting still. You don't sit, you don't stare out the window. And so when you come to church, what do you do when you sit still? You go to sleep. Got to fight it. Some people are on medication, so it's understandable. Chuck Swindoll tells a very convicting story, I think it was Swindoll, about a guy and fell asleep every week in church, drove him crazy, as it does. Pastors do not, do not like to look out and see people asleep. It it's, can be insulting, but at the same time, if they're on medication, if they're older, they don't sleep well, these are things that we have to take into account. But Swindoll was, it just bothered him. He said, in one Sunday, this, this family, there was a new family, 
And the woman came up to Chuck and was talking about how much she loved him and how much her husband loved him. And that uh, we, they listened to him all the time. They, they, they were so happy to have been there and to have been able to move there and come to his church. He said, I'm thinking in the back of my head, your husband doesn't love me at all. Until she said, and my husband is on, is, is, has cancer and he's been on chemo and the drugs heat him up and he just fights so hard to stay awake. And Chuck said, I just sank. You cannot judge people. Some people are just going to sleep. If you're older, it happens, doesn't it? I mean, it's hard to sleep as you get older. I mean, I'm not as old as some of you, uh, but some church sleep. So these are, these are ones that you, know, you can't blame, and nor should you blame yourself or kick yourself if you fall asleep. Um, but then there's the spiritually dead. They're in church, but they understand nothing spiritual. Uh, they're sleeping. I had one guy that would come here, and I think Harvest Bible Church is the best church to come to if you want a good nap because I preach for an hour. I mean, all the other churches, you're going to get a 10-minute doze, right? But here you can go to sleep for an hour in pretty comfortable chairs. And I told the family, I knew what he was doing, and I told, I told him, I said, don't come back. I, I don't want you sleeping. He sat close to the front. He always, from, from the time I started, he turned his head over. And I said, there are kids around you. I don't want kids looking at a grown man sleeping in church. Terrible. Sleep at home. You think you like that? I have no regrets in it. I thought it was, it was better for the church. Others are backslidden, desensitized to sin, and they need to be awakened. They don't want to hear it, but they're there. And then there's the familiarity, which, as I spoke earlier about the Lord's Supper, C.S. Lewis says, none are so unholy as those whose hands are cauterized with holy things. Examples, church announcements, old songs. You know, old songs. How many of you have sung old Baptist or Methodist hymns for so long? They're wonderful, wonderfully in-depth, but you've never once listened to the, to the words. You've never thought about what those words are saying. They just have old King James English, and yeah, what, what is that saying? Some you need to listen to because they're not good at all. But others are just drenched with wonder and beauty. And even the ordinances, as I said, you know, okay, another baptism, another baptism Sunday, another Lord's Supper. That our, our hands, as he says, our, our hands are cauterized with holy things. Another reason why we fall asleep. So here's some remedies for sleeping in church. Number one, come to salvation. <laughs> Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Number one, if you're saved, a lot of people there, they just aren't saved. Number two, read and study the text ahead of time and get to bed early. I am an expository preacher. You know exactly where I'm going to pick up. Unless I um, pull an audible on you and go to a different passage, which I rarely, if ever, do, uh, you know where I'm going to be the next week, don't you? At the very least, you, don't, you may not know how far I'm going to go, but you know where I'm going to be, at least that verse. And I always preach three or four or five verses at a minimum. Read it. Study it. Do your hermeneutics. Observe. Interpret. Apply. Measure my sermon against what you came up with. Come challenge me for not dealing with a particular issue that you dealt with in your study of it. And get to bed early. Don't stay up late on Saturday nights. Why do that? If you have to get up early, prepare to worship. Act like it's something important because you know what? It is. Listen to the preacher as if it were God speaking himself. Don't look at me as God. Don't look at any preacher as if they are God. But they are speaking for God from his word. Look at them and think of it. This is God speaking to me. I mean, this is not a sermon from Lance. I don't invent these 
sermons. I don't even like them called sermons. I, I do a study of the Bible from a passage of Scripture. I try to tell you what it says. I dig out the meanings for what it means, and I tell you what I think it should be, what, what I think should be done with it. That's God speaking. If, in fact, I'm being biblical, it's God, not me, speaking. So look at the preacher. Listen to him as if he's, you're not going to go to sleep that way. One thing I didn't put in there is write notes. Break out a pad, start writing. Writing out what he says, even if you don't. Okay, he said, uh, made a dumb joke. You know, did this or did that. You know, Lance is dressed funny today. If you're writing, you're not sleeping. Spend time in prayer, asking God to bless the preaching. That's, that's always my, my, uh, my prayer before I preach. Lord, bless the preaching of your word. Bless the preaching of your word. Not me. Don't give me anything. Just bless the preaching of it. Pray for that. Spend time in prayer doing that. Get to church early. Greet. Introduce yourself. I'm so annoyed with some of you. You don't know anyone except your family. You don't stay late. You don't come early. You know the people that sit around you. Maybe get up and you're the most loathed part of the service is, number one, the last 15 minutes of my sermon when you're ready to go. But that time when Doug says, meet and greet. Usually half the church just, they, we hate that time. Do we have to get up? We don't want to talk to anybody. Meet somebody. Find somebody new. Be convicted. You might go introduce yourself. Hey, I'm, I'm so-and-so. Well, I've been here for 10 years. Oh, well, that's, that's on you. And people do that all the time. But that's okay. There's something to laugh about. Go meet him again the following week. A friend of mine, they moved away from here um, up to Bernie, Texas. And he, he was visiting a church. And he said, Lance, I really liked the sermon. He said, I went and saw the preacher. He said, and I talked to him on Sunday after the sermon for 45 minutes. He said, we had a great conversation. I really liked him. He said, the next week we go back. He said, and I walk out the bathroom, and that, that's where he was. And I said, hey. And he introduced himself to me. He had absolutely no recollection of ever having met me. And we talked for 45 minutes. I said, was he kidding? He said, Lance, he was not kidding. He had no recollection. I said, wow, okay. That matters. Meet people, look them in the eye, remember them, go home and write their name down. People say, you're so good at that. I am not good at names. I make myself be good at names. People that are good at names hear it and they don't forget it. That is not me. I say it. I go back in my office. I write it on a pad. Here it is, boom, boom, boom. I'll, I might not remember it the next time. One guy I met this past Sunday, and I said, hey, how do you meet you? He goes, well, we did meet last week. Oh, okay. I'm Josh, Josh, Josh. Josh, 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 Josh. Use it as a curse word, Josh. You'll remember it. I'm not going to forget him. Uh, Jim, I called Jim Jeff for a little while. Jeff, and he goes, Jim, Jim, I haven't gotten it wrong yet. Write him down, and when you're praying for people, you know their names. It takes a little bit of effort. Do it. You won't go to sleep. Sing songs as if you are praying. That is the prayer time. Those songs are not just to be sung to make you feel good. Those are prayer. Read those words. We are singing unto God. We are singing about God. It's an out loud prayer to a song, to, to music, I should say. Think of the music as prayer time. That's what it is, really. And, you know, oftentimes that's what people call music is worship. That's the worship time. Well, is it? It's worship if, if you're actually worshiping through it. But if you're just singing songs, it's just singing songs. And write your check on Saturday night if you give at all. Because that's the real worship, isn't it? That's the sacrifice. Write the check on Saturday night. Pray about the check or whatever it is you put in there, an envelope full of cash, whatever it is. 
Pray about it. Lord, let this money go for your glory. I don't know where it's going, but I'm going to trust the elders of the church that it's going to the right place. Bless this giving. Why not do that? You go away having worshipped. That will keep you from sleeping. It makes your time in church. It's a lot better than getting up late after a late night, not having a clue what the passage is about, forgetting your Bible. Oh, I'll just break it out of my phone, sitting still, and sitting there judging us on whether or not we're able to entertain you. Go away going, oh, the music wasn't very good. Lance wasn't on today. Uh, you know, no one talked to me. That's on you. All right, I got that out. Whew. That felt good. <laughs> Should have done that Sunday morning, right? <laughs> I'll find another time to do it. I usually do. One man said this, talks about a dream. It's a dream about how on one occasion the devil sat upon his throne listening to his agents report on the progress they made in opposing the truth of Christ and destroying the souls of men. One spirit said, when he came to Satan, I loosed the lions upon Christians crossing the desert. The sands were strewn with their mangled corpses. So what, said Satan? The lions destroyed their bodies, but their souls were saved. It is their souls that I'm after. Another reported, There was a company of Christians sailing through the sea on a vessel. I sent a great wind against the ship that drove it into the rocks. Every Christian on board was drowned. So what, said Satan? It's their souls I'm after. The third came and said, For ten years I've been trying to cast a Christian into a deep sleep. At last I have succeeded. With that, the corridors of hell rang and shouts of great triumph followed putting lulling a professed christian to sleep i'm not just not just a physical sleep but just a lull of life that backslidden nature that victimhood that people like to play so it was so paul's going to go on towards jerusalem we'll finish this up verse 13 so they took the way of the boy alive in verse 12 but we it's the next day, Paul's preached all night, but we going on ahead, you get this we verse. There's, Luke is now with, with them and writing in the first person again. Going, on ahead, going ahead to the ship, set sail for Assos, intending from there to take Paul on board. For so he had arranged it. We have no idea why. They wanted to get in the ship, Paul didn't, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and came to Mytilene. Sailing from there, we arrived the following day opposite Chios, and the next day we crossed over to Samos. And the day following, we came to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia. For he was hurrying to get to Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. So you see on the overhead here, uh, this is uh, the Aegean Sea. Here's Corinth over here, Greece. Here's Asia Minor, modern Turkey. So Paul had come back. He's in Troas from Philippi. Uh, he's in Troas. It says he went on, goes on to Assos. He sails down here. He actually walks, so he takes the, the land to, to Mytilene. And then he goes down to Chios. He goes down to Samos. By the way, you were asked recently, uh, Charlie, where's Patmos? Right there. See, I did that for you. You ask a question, I give you the answer. Goes down to Samos. And then he goes down to Mytilene. This is on the, the continent, the Asia, Asia Minor, modern Turkey. And that's where he is. And he's trying to get to Jerusalem before Pentecost. He had, um, had the Feast of Unleavened Bread up here in Philippi, or in Macedonia, we assume it's in Philippi. And uh, uh, Pentecost is 50 days after the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is also called Passover. We know that he was five days crossing the sea, and he stayed here for seven days. So he's got, what, 38 days to make it to Jerusalem? And that's where he's trying to get for 
the Feast of Pentecost. Obeying the Old Testament law, which is interesting, isn't it? Yeah, Carol? Okay, he was down here. Uh, he had he had come up here to Troas. He had crossed over, made his way down, and stayed in Corinth for three months. And from there, after the three months, he was going to head straight to Jerusalem. Learned of the plot, and then went back. Probably. He probably wanted to be from here to get down to Jerusalem for the Passover. But learning of the plot, he decided... Can't do that. I'll go have the Passover up here, which is going to be the celebration of the resurrection of Christ. And then I'm going to now try to get back for the Feast of Pentecost. For whatever reason, doesn't even say why. But yeah, I think that's what's going on. All right, one last slide. Uh, the resemblances of Paul and Jesus here, to put the finishing touch on this night. Um, I think that, that Luke, that, that these, these resemblances are too clear for this to be a happenstance. Like Jesus, Paul traveled to Jerusalem with his disciples. Like Jesus, Paul was opposed by hostile Jews. Chapter 20, verses 3 and 19. Like Jesus, Paul made or received three predictions of his sufferings. Chapter 20, 20 verses 22 to 23. Chapter 21, verse 4. And chapter 21, verse 11. Including his being handed over to the Gentiles, as Jesus was. Like Jesus, Paul declared readiness to lay down his life, chapter 20 and chapter 21. Like Jesus, Paul determined to complete his ministry in spite of any opposition to the contrary. And like Jesus, Paul expressed his abandonment to God's will. I will follow God. I, I think these are just, you can't compare them too hard because they break down a bit. I think certainly intended all of this in his, and uh, what he put it together, how he put it together. So. Well, let me close. Lord, thank you for the evening together. Thank you so much. I pray for the folks driving home in the rain. I pray that your word would, would convict and transform. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a sermon by Dr. Lance Waldy, Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Cypress, Texas.